Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, the podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Today, I'm welcoming yet another CEO to the show. Janice Lintz is an accomplished consultant and changemaker who works across the hearing access, advocacy, and related political spectrum. She's the CEO of Hearing Access and Innovations, a leading company dedicated to helping the world's businesses, entertainment institutions, government agencies, and mass transit organizations improve their accessibility for people with hearing loss. Janice is also a consumer education, travel, and food writer. She's written for Forbes magazine. She's also visited 194 Traveler's Century Club destinations, and she's on a quest to visit every single country in the world. Listen to this episode to discover why Janice chose to change the world versus lower her standards. She also shares her number one tip to develop a mindset of never giving up. Let's head on over to the interview. All right, welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, a podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Janice Lintz on the podcast. Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric, so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm excited to have you on here. And I think you bring a really unique piece to The Eric Mueller Show here because of, of your background and, and you're currently an entrepreneur in um, hearing accessibility space. Would you share a little bit about what you do and maybe um, the background as far as why or, you know, what pushed you into that space? What made you um, pursue that? Absolutely. Um, I entered the space as an unwittingly candidate. Um, it wasn't like I picked this. It picked me. My daughter was diagnosed with a hearing loss. And when the doctor told me there were um, right after the diagnosis, um, she said to me, don't worry, there are special schools for her. I hadn't even wrapped my head around the diagnosis when already the bar for my daughter's entire life was lowered. And I, I didn't really understand this, nor was I interested in joining this group. So I decided it was easier to change the world than to change my standards. And that's what I set about doing once I got my daughter situated with her hearing aids. Yeah. And I mean, you really like thrust yourself into just thinking about what aspects of the world need to be changed to, to, to meet those needs. Not, not let's lower the bar, but let's set our goals higher and just, you know, keep ourselves at the same standard as just everybody else because, you know, the world's moving that direction for everyone else. So why should it not for, for, you know, everybody that has, you know, either hearing disability or visual disability. Um, so I think, I mean, that's very inspirational. Thank you. It, it was a really selfish endeavor. I just didn't want to be part of this group that I, I just, I just felt like the bar was so low and it was just not something that I was interested in. And I didn't understand why suddenly a diagnosis changed my friend group, my my daughter's school group. Um, I, I didn't understand why our whole life had to dramatically change. So it really was easier to change the world than change my standards. Like I say that, and it sounds like a joke, but it really wasn't. Yeah. I was really, I was just not changing my life and how we led it. And and so we did it. I, I decided to change the world and I have. And I think my friends thought at the time I was, kidding. And I was like, I, I I think they've come to realize now, no, I was not kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I think now they love me long enough and they're like, no, no, she really doesn't joke about things like this. You were, you were serious about it. Yeah. 
And and you were actually honored um, People Magazine, Heroes Among Us, back in, in 2008. You were actually featured in that magazine regarding this experience with your daughter and, and, and things like that. So I I think that's awesome, too. I mean, you're getting you know recognition from it. That had to be kind of a, a surreal experience to be featured in a magazine like that. It was really strange because I really had called um, the magazine to ask them to profile at the time a celebrity who had hearing loss. Hmm. And I... I wanted, I thought we could raise the profile of hearing loss if we had celebrities who had hearing loss profile in the magazine and people magazine wasn't really particularly interested in the person I had suggested. And, but then the writer wanted to know why I was so interested in the topic. And when I explained what I was doing, she said, you know, we're not interested in the person you recommended, but we'd like to profile you. And I was like, hmm. no, no, I don't think you understand. I'm not a celebrity. Yeah. I don't belong in People Magazine. Why would you possibly want to profile me? And she said, because we'd like to have you among the heroes among us. And I said, I'm not a hero. And I still didn't really understand it because this was really just a way for our family to function. You know, yeah. if you live in New York City, there's no way you cannot go to all the wonderful cultures. And well, apparently you can during the pandemic, but in non-pandemic times, I wanted to partake in museums, theaters. That's why I live in, in New York. And that's why I love traveling around the United States. I wanted to be able to go to like national parks and see, see everything. And we couldn't because the access wasn't in place. So I did this because it was selfish. I wanted to enjoy life. And I want my daughter to have the richness of life. Um, so when People Magazine said, yep, that's why we want to include you, I was I was really quite shocked and surprised and, and truly honored by it. Yeah. That, I mean, that's quite an honor. And you, know, you talk about the the solutions that you wanted to to discover and the, the you know, the you wanted to be a solution to that problem for for people like your daughter that are facing that that challenge of, of having a hearing disability or, you know, having, you know, hard of hearing or, you know, what have you. So comes in comes your company, Hearing Access and Innovation. So share with us just how that came about and, and what, you know, what were the steps you took as an entrepreneur to bring that, that dream to fruition and to create those solutions to those problems? Well, you know, it started out that I was doing advocacy and I've done advocacy for 19 years. And then post-divorce, um, the judge in my divorce decided this was my new company. And so it became a company because this is what the judge decided in my divorce that I now had a company, oh. um, which was yeah. a little odd. This was not meant to be my business anymore. Then this was just about our family functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started working with companies to help them become accessible. And the one thing that I did believe is there is this perception among companies that people with hearing loss or their parents should provide information to companies on how to meet those needs. Um, companies like Apple call it feedback. It's not mm -hmm. feedback. That's consulting services. And people with disabilities and their parents deserve to be paid for those services because you hire, you know, companies like Apple hire interior decorators and architects to build their stores. Adding access is another layer within the business. And somehow, yeah, they don't think they need to pay people, that people should be doing this out of the graciousness of their heart. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like Taylor Swift had said, you know, we don't ask you for free music or phones or AirPods, uh, you know, to paraphrase her. 
don't ask me for free music when she was discussing Apple, you know, Apple music, using her music for free, downloading for free. And it's the same thing. You know, you don't give me free phones. Why are you asking me to work for free and constantly, you know, fix the problems that companies have? And so I felt that this was an important precedent to start that companies had to start paying for this information. Otherwise, just hire, you know, when they when they're building stores out or museums, there should be another layer, just like they figure out how to turn on the electricity, they should be hiring consultants. But the biggest problem is that the consultants they hire focus on dis- when they hire disability consultants, they hire people who focus on wheelchair access because in order for them to um, turn on, open the doors, they need to get a certificate of occupancy, a CFO. And physical access is built into the building codes. And hearing access is not. It's built into programmatic access. So consultants who work focus on disability access tend to focus on the physical access. And then when dollars are running tight, the place they slash is the places that they could still open their doors and it won't be noticed and maybe one day they'll get to it. And the first place they slash is the hearing access. And so then when people have to complain, you have people who have to work for free. And I really resented it. And yeah. I was tired of having to explain to um, the same architectural firms. You know, you had a architectural firm who built, you know, the, you know, added the extension to the Morgan Museum. And suddenly they're building the Academy Museum in, in L.A. And suddenly they forgot the access that they put in in New York City, or they forgot, you know, they did other museums in New York City with um, hearing access, or I worked with the same uh, Renzo Piano in Greece. And suddenly they forgot about that same access because they worked in silos and teams and the teams didn't communicate. And somehow Mm -hmm. it became my problem to connect their teams. And it was like, why is a mother having to work for free because your teams can't communicate? And it's just not appropriate. And I deserve to be paid. Yeah. And then it becomes this conflict of, are you an advocate or a consultant? And why are the two mutually exclusive? If you file a complaint about the lack of access, people think you're drumming up business. And there has to be, the problem with the ADA is it's um, a federally unfunded mandate with no teeth. You know, when you go in many cities, you see restaurants with, letter grades on health departments, right? Where you see the restaurants in A, B, C, or fail. There is no um, buddy running around checking to see what the access is for people with disabilities. And so it's a federally unfunded mandate with no teeth and suddenly it falls on parents. And then you have to file complaints and basically tell companies or museums what they're doing wrong and give them a play-by-play. Because if you don't, then it doesn't get done. So you're basically becoming a free consultant. And then the places say this is a free feedback. And this is an untenable position. Hmm. And nor does anybody want to do this repeatedly. Because imagine if you had to sit and file complaints one after another of every single time there's a problem. It's exhausting. And then, you, you know, it's making sure are you with the right agency. Do you go to the ADA is overseeing... Um, by two different agencies, the U.S. Access Board and the Department of Justice. But it's not always. Sometimes it could be if it's in the airport, the DOT, 
or the Department of Transportation or the FAA, or it could even be the Appropriations Committee, as I found with the Smithsonian. And then you have local, state, and city organizations. And then some states, you can go to the Attorney General, like in New York, but in another state, like Colorado, you may not be. And so it becomes like figuring out this maze of government agencies is really difficult. Yeah. And, and you used your, you know, your background in, in business and law degree, your, your experience as, as a litigator to, you know, bring to the table and be this go-to person on all these matters related to people who are deaf or hard of hearing. So I think, you know, the backbone of your business really is, is rooted in that, that expertise you have on the, on, on the, you know, situation as a whole. It's interesting. I, I really barely practice law because um, when I had my daughter, I had a son who died um, and then my daughter almost died and then had a hearing loss. So I barely practice law. My training and I don't practice law per se because I'm on retirement status. So I never um, give legal advice. But, you know, I, I am really, I would say, trained in keeping track and I'm super organized in keeping track of all of the different things. But it is really complicated for a layperson to sit and navigate this complex architecture of the ADA is really, really tough. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. And I think businesses many times count on it. But I think they're focusing on the wrong idea of viewing it as compliance. I view it as companies should provide excellent customer service. And it's really important for all businesses to give excellent customer service to all their customers, including people with disabilities. So even if, let's say, you throw out the ADA, you want to know that your company is providing great customer service. And it should not be just something as a nice thing to have. It should be as a way to make sure all your customers feel like their needs are being met, because that's what keeps people returning. Sure. Yeah, it keeps them coming back. If you're, if you're providing them with that service that you know they've grown to expect from your business, I think that's a big piece that, you know, to hammer home here to just know that if you are a business owner or a aspiring entrepreneur, you know, wherever you're at in the process, you're probably going to be serving people with either service or product. And if you can't convince them to come back, yeah, that's going to, that your business is going to suffer. And a big way to do that in the brick and mortar space is customer service. So I think that that's a great point there, Janice. I, do you have any tips for, for people listening? You know, if they are business owners or, you know, how, how can you improve your customer service? Any, you know, roadmaps and how you can do that? Well, one is to understand that hearing access is, um, you know, one, I, I was on the phone with someone today, focus on the end user. If you want to have, it's really expensive for customer retention. Getting new customers costs a lot of money. So if you have customers, it's cheaper to keep your customers than to go out and find new customers. Yeah. And one of the ways you can keep your customers is by, by provide, focusing on the end user and providing excellent customer service. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure your customers can hear, because if they can't hear the message, they're not going to buy what you're selling. Yeah. So for people with hearing loss, one of the easiest ways to do, I mean, when you view that um, one in five teens has some form of hearing loss, 48 million people have some form of hearing loss, 46 million heart, um, heart of hearing. 
one of the easiest ways to reach people who are hard of hearing, who wear hearing aids or cochlear implants, is to use something like called an induction loop in your stores or at your service counters that allows the person with hearing loss to hear the sound directly in their hearing aids or cochlear implants from the speaker. And what's crazy is you see this access in London, you see it in Israel, and for some reason, stores here have not added the same access, which is really bizarre. And it, it, it's a culture, it's part of it is it's a culture of it's about us versus them. In yeah. Israel and in the UK, it's about us. In the United States, it's about them. And I think we need to change that mindset. Because yeah. people with hearing loss don't travel in packs. <laughs> There's this perception like, oh, you only, if you have a hearing loss, you only travel with people with hearing loss. No, it's your friends and family. Every family has someone in it with hearing loss. So if your family can't hear, you're not going to go back, right? Yeah, you, yeah, you appreciate people who and companies that provide great customer service. And when people see the ear symbol indicating that an induction loop is available, it sends a message to all customers that we are a welcoming place of service. And you helped to do that in New York City specifically. I, I remember reading in your background that that you were able to, to work with multiple organizations in the, in the city to recommend that these induction loops be used in, in the subway specifically. And, and in call boxes as, as part of a, a stimulus package that President Obama had. So I think that, you know, taking those strides, even even in a small, you know, sample size, I mean, New York City is massive, but, you know, one location, you know, you still created lasting change right there. Yes. I, so I worked in New York City. So because I live in New York City, I use New York City as a best practice model, yeah. um, adding the access to museums, theaters, subway information booths, taxis. And then expanded it across to other states, because once you had a, a model of excellence, right, I could then say, OK, this access is in the Intrepid Museum. It's in places like MoMA and then go to state, you know, other states. So, like, for example, in Minnesota, it's in the Mills City Museum in Tennessee. It's in Graceland in Indiana. It's the Indiana State Museum. But when you say to somebody oh, it's in these museums in New York, they're main brand recognizable museums and people understand that. So it's easy if I say the Indiana State Museum, okay, it's in the New York Historical Society. They know that museum because it's a well-known, well-regarded museum and then they're going to mirror it. The sure. same for Graceland. The owner of Graceland happens, or I don't know if he still owns it, but he did at the time, he lived in New York City. So he had a reference point. And so- the people, you know, the people I worked with at the Mill City Museum knew museums in New York. And so they were able to see it, um, the access. They knew about it at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh. And so once you can get the access in one museum in a state, it's really easy to expand the access across the state. And my goal is for the access to be in all 50 states. And part of the way that we're also expanding the access is through airports. Delta Airlines, as they renovate their airports, is expanding the access. So they have it in Atlanta. They have it in Detroit. And then once people try the access, it's it just rolls out across the state. Yeah. And let's let's use this. Let's segue right into, you know, another topic, another passion of yours, in addition to hearing access is is traveling. 
So you have a goal to visit every country in the world. You've, you've said you've been to 194 of them thus far. 194 countries, territories, and unrecognized nations. Yeah. Or 139 UN countries. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about just goal setting and why this milestone is so important to you. You know, you're, you're actually a guru when it comes to earning credit card rewards and airline mileage rewards. You know, what's your secret to that? And, and why is this milestone of traveling to all these countries so, so valuable to you? Well, I think it's kind of, I just am a curious person. I want to see every single country. I remember doing, you know, the quintessential post-college backpacking trip. And it was my first time to Europe. And I remember being in France and trying cheese. And, you know, I'm of an older generation. We didn't have the same quality cheese you can get today. You know, the thing, cheese came in a green can or with plastic around it. And I didn't really understand the point of cheese. And then I go to France and I try it and I, Italy, and I'm like amazed. And I realized at that point, I wanted to see countries myself because I've been to so many incredible countries where the perception is one thing and the reality is something else. And I love visiting places and meeting the people. I mean, for example, I was in Saudi Arabia right after um, the entire Khashoggi incident happened. And I try to stay out of politics and just focus on the people. And when I was in Saudi Arabia, people were so welcoming to me. I had women inviting me to coffee. They had these beautiful rugs that they, when they go on a picnic, they bring a rug, which I had never seen before. And they bring um, coffee pots, like literally silver coffee pots. And they were inviting me to their picnics. And I thought, this is so lovely. Like my perception from the media was one thing and the reality was something else. And so part of that is seeing all these beautiful and meeting lovely people, trying the food. And also while I'm traveling, I'm also tracking global best practices of hearing access in various countries. That's how I was able to implement the subways and the taxis in New York because I saw the access in London. So I'm always working. Um, but one of the ways that I was able to achieve visiting so many countries was frequent flyer points. Um, sure. As you mentioned, I took out 80 credit cards and earned 2.7 million miles on um, frequent flyer miles. And that enabled me to travel to so many countries. Yeah. You always got to like figure out how can you do things better? Exactly. Yeah. I think, I mean, that ties in perfectly with, you know, the entrepreneur piece that, that I want to focus on with this podcast is, you know, what, like you brought up a great point of the perception and the preconceived notions you have of a place or a thing or an idea could be completely the opposite of what it actually is, what, what it actually, you know, exists as. So I'm, I'm just curious to ask, I mean, how do, how do we, you know, how do we understand people better or how do we know our target customer or target market better? Cause it could be totally the opposite of what we think right now. Honestly, I think it's talking and listening. I, I was on a call with someone today and, um, I'm not going to out the company, but this was a major electronic company who, for example, claimed they were Apple compatible. And I was shocked to find out that nobody seemed in the executive office to have a MacBook. Hmm. And they had never fully tested to see that the monitor, I was buying a monitor. This is a completely different thing. I was bought a monitor and it said it was Mac compatible. 
and I couldn't get my MacBook to connect to the monitor. And I'm on with the executive office team and they couldn't figure it out. And apparently no one had a MacBook. Well, I don't understand how a major company, if you say you're Mac compatible, have a MacBook. Test it. Yeah. Follow through, right? Like this doesn't even make sense. It turns out you're missing a wire. And I'm not sure if the company like left this out and suddenly realized that you needed an adapter for an HDMI that it didn't say it was missing. But if you, I think most people never follow through. They make statements. But one of the reasons I think I've been successful is I follow through the rabbit hole of if I say something, I have gone through and tested it out. But when people say something and I know it's not true, I test it and prove it. It's not true. Mm -hmm. And I think far too many companies are so quick to churn out new product. They don't test their customer service online. They don't pick up the phone and call the 1-800 number. So when someone proposes offshoring customer service, I think the CEO should get on the phone and try to call the 1-800 number and see what it's like when customer service is offshored. As an American, it's frustrating, right? Yeah. The language, there are language barriers. The people are reading scripts to make sure they stay on message. Yeah. That's frustrating when you're calling. I would yeah, like to have... see, right? Like uh, yeah. everybody who's ever experienced that is infuriated. And, 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 and when you have to wonder, like, did anyone fully think this through? Well, yes, it sounds great to save money here. But again, if you are not addressing your customer's need, they are going to move on to another company who does. Yeah. And I think some things sound great in theory, but nobody ever tests it out or follows through or checks it out. And I think people need to get back to customer service. I think this country has really moved very far away from customer service. And I think it's starting to hurt companies and it's time to get back to customer service. Yeah. And, and just gets to the core of, you know, just communicating with people. I mean, that's one aspect of my life that I always like to continually improve on is just being able to communicate with other people and know where they're coming from and know where I'm coming from. And it really just helps, you know, a dynamic, whether it's a working relationship or a personal relationship. I, I found that to be pretty, you know, useful in my life, just being able to communicate openly with people. Yeah. But I think sometimes it's even more than that. It's like Google your product. I remember working with um, a company, um, Hewlett Packard, and there was all over the internet that every time you use the printer, it would print two-sided and there was no way to un uh, make to have the printer not print two-sided without unticking a box every single time. Hmm. And all these people online were having this problem of wasting paper and it was frustrating. And I contacted the CEO because I'm like, have you seen your, this problem? This is annoying. And apparently the code was written in India and nobody, the person in India never thought to Google because it's a different culture and Americans like things their way. Well, apparently in that culture, they're more accepting of the way this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even know it was on the internet. And I was truly shocked. They fixed it. They rewrote the code and fixed it. And now you can untick it permanently. Yeah. Which is super helpful, right? You stop wasting paper. You stop wasting ink, which is really not cool. But you got to Google your product and check 
And if you're coding, having people code in another country, you have to understand the differences and the differences of culture to understand that people in different cultures have different perceptions. And if you're selling your product in one country and, and, and the person creating the product is in another country, there may be a mismatch of values. It's not bad or wrong. It's just different. And if you want to focus on your end user, you actually have to Google your product and stay on top of what the feedback is. And if you see that there's a problem, fix it. This to me seems like common sense, but I think custom companies are constantly so eager to churn out new products that they're not looking to how to meet their customers' needs. Yeah, I think re- remaining on a competitive edge, it seems like, I mean, even that, that previous, previous example of saying we're Mac compatible without really having a proof of concept of that, I think probably is just, you know, they, they need to remain on the competitive edge and be, you know, a market, you know, com- competitor basically. And so if they don't say they're Mac compatible, they're not going to get anybody to, to buy it who wants to use it for a Mac. But, you know, how many customers bought that product to then find out that, it, you know, I mean, how many calls did you create for your call center saying this product doesn't work? by not testing it out to begin with. So I, I think that's know, a great I, point. I spent five hours on the phone trying to solve this already. And yeah. I mean, not everyone calls the CEO the way I, I do. I mean, I that's my personal MO. If you want to solve a problem, contact the CEO. But it is amazing to me, but I'm seeing this more and more with companies. And it's the same issue, whether it's disability access or any others, companies are not focusing on the end user the way they used to. And they need to get back to the um, focusing on the end user. And I think when you focus on the end user and you deliver an excellent product and you actually test out the issues that were, and the claims you claim, customers are more satisfied. And then the reviews come in and you sell more product because you focus on the end user. Yeah. And you got to keep in mind, who your end user is, right? Which which target market are you are you looking at? So I mean, I, I think with your company, I mean, hearing access, I mean, that's a pretty niche market of people that you know have hearing troubles or you know they need they need to be able to hear better. But I'm curious to ask you if if I have you know a business where I'm I'm creating a product that is maybe more mass market or you know is could could theoretically be used by everyone in the U.S. What you know marketing tips or what you know what types of strategies would you take with that? to know that I'm targeting the appropriate end user? Well, one, I would figure out who your who do you think is your end user and then make sure that they can actually use it. So for example, the, in my monitor situation, right? Yeah. I have this monitor. It is not easily set upable, right? And in my opinion, if you have tech people creating the the user manual, right? And you can't get, um, if you can't get, understand the user manual because it's too tech complicated, you want to make sure, as I joke, that like a grandmother can set up their monitor. Yeah. It should be simple. And I think sometimes companies also like get in their own head and they think they're talking to their own audience and they should open it up to um, a much more, it's not simplifying it, it's not dumbing it down. It's just bringing clarity to the situation, but focusing on, okay, who is your end user? Are you only targeting tech people? 
Are you, or are you targeting, let's say, for example, on a monitor, lay people who may have no background? Well, if you may have no background, then make that, that instruction booklet simple so that someone without a tech background can actually understand it. Yeah, put put it in put it in layman's term, basically, right? I mean, make it make it so it's it's easily you know accessible to people. So it kind of comes back to the theme of of your company. I mean, you're you're targeting you know people that have have hearing loss, but that is also going to benefit everybody else. If a company is very very accessible and can you know accommodate everybody, that's going to help the experience for everyone as a whole. But it's also if you're targeting people with things. Ex- you know, when you're targeting just people, you want to make sure you're targeting people with hearing loss, with physical disabilities. And okay, now what does that mean? How do you make something accessible? So if you have videos online, adding captions to every single video so that they can access it. If you have a storefront, making sure that your service counters have this induction loop. It's it's walking through, but hiring consultants who have an expertise in the area. You know, you can't just, I find it fascinating. People will hire a disability consultant who says they do everything, which is really hard to do. You know, you, you would never ask someone of one race to make a decision about another race, but yet we are always asking people of one disability to make a dis- decisions about another disability. And people somehow don't listen to Heard to you that that people that that's not an appropriate thing to do until you you switch it to race and then suddenly it becomes clear why that is inappropriate. Sure, yeah. Now and Janice, let's let's take a little bit different angle now here. So we've we've talked a little bit about your experience as a traveler, and I really just want to kind of dive into that with with you being a CEO of of your company and also having this burning passion for travel. How do you balance that? I mean, do you have any tips for anybody who is? you know, wants to travel, but also is, A, they're working a full-time job, or maybe they're a student pursuing, you know, I know you're also pursuing a degree at, at the Harvard Kennedy School. So I guess, how, how would someone navigate that challenge of, of wanting to travel and get out and see the world, but also have responsibilities, whether it be in business or education? Well, I start my degree in July, in next July, so I haven't started yet. But, you know, one way you can um, add, you know, squeeze in vacation time is, if you're going to a conference, you know, if your conference is on a on a Monday, you know, leave Friday night so that you get the weekend, you know, tag on weekends, attach meetings across next to long weekends so that you're already in a destination um, and even make little holidays when you're on a business trip. Uh, you know, it's a little harder now with COVID, but on a business trip, you know, go to dinner and find like whatever the hot spot of dinner, don't eat in your in your hotel room. You know, make it as a little vacation meeting. Um, you know, if let's say your meetings and you have a little break between meetings, squeeze in a museum or book a later flight and go to you know squeeze in something. You know that maybe is take a walk around the town or get up early and you know take a run around the town. You got to kind of squeeze it in and 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 put in that extra distance, but. Plenty of people travel for work um, and they can do it. But even if you're not traveling for work in your own hometown, I always do walking tours in my hometown. I want to, you know, I'm in New York City and the best thing is going on great walking tours in different areas. And even if I've already done what I think are all the walking tours, I'll go to the same area with a different guide 
because different people have different perceptions of the area. Sure, there's over some overlap, but you know what? Sometimes also, if I hear it twice, I I actually remember it. But different people see the same neighborhood, and there is so much history. They so I, you know that's a great way to squeeze in in just your own neighborhood. Going to museums, looking for um, you know fun odd things in every town. It's a great, you know, you can always squeeze in an opportunity and, and then at a minimum, go to restaurants from another, you know, cuisine or nationality than you typical. Don't just always do the, you know, this the Italian or French. Seek out every um, area has um, people who have immigrated to the area. Go try their specialty and their food. First off, it bridges a culture between instead of viewing people as outsiders, when you taste their cuisine and you're sitting in the restaurant and you're talking to them, be open and listen and, and try the food and ask questions about it. People are really happy to explain their food um, because they really are happy when you are trying to learn about their culture. Yeah. And I know you, you, you know, love to, you know, talk about the amount of love you have for culture itself. I mean, you, you know, you, by traveling and figuring out, you know, the different ways that you can improve your business, that that's one thing, but you just have a love for, for culture as a whole. So I, th- I think that's, I mean, that's very inspirational. Yeah. I mean, my favorite thing is, you know, try for, I love, I mean, I live in New York city, so there's tons of restaurants, there's tons of neighborhoods. I love going into different neighborhoods and trying, um, food from different cultures. I just think, and then talking to the people. And I have always found that if you come in with a very open mind and you're talking and asking questions about like what to eat, or you're kind of like, you know, nicely peering over to other people, like to see what they're eating, people will see your interest and and you can start a cup of conversation and say, oh, you know, I'm just curious what you're eating. It looks so good. And people will tell you. And I've met tons of so many nice people just being really nice and friendly. I think, you know, and, and whatever you do, if you ask questions with a smile, people are just take it so much warmer when you're asking, they're, they're happy to share their culture. I mean, who, who, when, when, when you own a restaurant, you love your food, you want people to enjoy the food. And, and if somebody doesn't know, isn't familiar with that food, people want you to try it. And so they're happy to share with you. And if you, you know, one of my favorite things is to sometimes ask if there's like either a tasting menu, or if you can order small plates, so you can try lots of things, not just like one dish. And sometimes I've been in restaurants, even in other countries, I remember, um, I think it was in Somaliland, where I had one meal, and I'm one person, I can only eat so much food. And I wanted to try a lot of dishes. And I asked if I could just buy appetizers of like all these different dishes that were entrees. And the guys, the guys just said, you know what? Sure. Why not? And so he sold me appetizer portions of entrees so that I could try like five, six dishes because he knew I was really interested in sampling everything. Sure. And, and I had like my, my guide who I was with thought it, it, he didn't even know that you could do this. And I'm like, if you don't ask, you don't know. And I had the most marvelous time, really marvelous time trying so many different, amazing dishes. 
it was wonderful. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point too. Of if if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. So I think that really applies to to a lot of avenues in life. And and really, I mean, from from a goal standpoint, with with travel and 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 being a culture lover. So if you were to visit every country in the world, you would be able to put you know a cap on that and say, I have achieved success in that way. You know, there's a measurable way to say you've done that if you visited every country. You know, there's a numerical thing you could do with that. But Janice, what what is your definition of success as a whole? Whether you I mean you could target this from a business standpoint, from a you know relationship standpoint, but how do you define the term success? When you're living the life you actually want to live. Short and sweet. I love that. Yeah, I think, it really is. You know what? Yeah. It's I, you know, you can have all the material things in the world, but if you are not happy with them, you are constantly looking for more stuff. And there was, and I actually wrote an article about this. There was a point where I had a very materialistic life and, you know, post-divorce, post-cancer, I really had this um, moment where I had to focus on what exactly was important to me. And when I embarked on this two-year sabbatical of traveling, I focused on like, if I died tomorrow, what was it that I would be really remiss at not doing? You know, taking my children, of course, off the table, because that's, you know, like a given. But yeah. like, what about for me? And I realized it was it was traveling and it wasn't about just ticking a box. It was I really wanted to see every single place because God, I have the worst case of FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. Yeah. God forbid I'm in a place and, and I miss something and someone says, oh, did you see? That is the worst thing you could say to me yeah. because I will be like, oh, and so I, I keep these running lists on every country. So if I do miss something in a country, you never know when you can end up passing through a country or it's on the way to another country and you can make a stop. And if something is really important that I missed, um, I can add it back in and like so that I could go back. Um, or sometimes I, I just I just want to enjoy every single um, place. So for me, it's really not ticking a box. But then the other thing was, I always did want to go back to school and to go to Harvard. And I, I just thought my time had passed. And yeah. I thought, you know, I'm older. Um, I'm 58. I just thought like it was a missed opportunity. And when my daughter was applying to school and I, you know, she was trying to figure out what schools to apply to. I said, well, aren't you going to apply to Harvard? Because when we had done the college tour, we stopped at Harvard and I thought it was the most amazing school. And I, 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 when I stepped on that campus, I thought, oh my God, this is just unbelievable. I wish I had the opportunity to go here. And it wasn't the right school for her. And so she, she said to me, if you want to go, you go. And I was like, yeah, I'm going, I'm 58 years old. And she's like, why not? And you know, she's like, I think they're, you know, this year during the pandemic, they're waiving the GREs and the GMATs. So I was like, uh, really? And I ended up applying and it was a major, I didn't expect to get in, but it was a major tick the box for me of life goals. And I realized you get one life, you want to do things that are really meaningful to you yourself. And so for me, success is my getting to travel the way I love to travel and doing the things I want to do, like going to school, that is complete success to me, you know, and working on the projects that 
I love, that's success. Having another pair of shoes or a handbag, that's not success. Driving a great car, that's not success to me. Just doing the life I want to live, that is success. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly sounds successful to me. If if you're able to do what you want to do and lead the life that you want to lead, you know, that really is, I mean, that's a great definition of success. I have a, I have another question built off of that, that really has become the core question of the Eric Mueller show. And that is, you know, the podcast is aimed to explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick and stay driven. So I want to ask you, Janice, what is the one single driving force that keeps your inner clock ticking towards success? I never give up. And to me, no is just, um, and <laughs> it's not acceptable. I just, when I feel that there is an injustice to someone or something, I am going to remedy that injustice. And I never, ever give up. I'm working now. Um, I just, one of the projects that I just had a success with um, last week was the over-the-counter hearing aid regulations, which the new proposal. I've been working on that project since 2009. I was told, you know, I didn't understand why hearing aids were so expensive. I didn't understand why I couldn't get clarity of what I was purchasing for $8,000. And I was determined to figure out why. And just because something is been done that way for a long time, to me, does not mean it has to continue. And so I was driven by what I viewed as an injustice to people with hearing loss of purchasing really expensive hearing aids with no information. And so I am really driven by fixing injustices. Um, and I love doing it. And it, and people said it couldn't be done. And I think a lot of people underestimate me. And I was really, really proud when the FDA published the rules and cited my FDA testimony in the fit, footnote. That's what drives me, helping people. I really love to help people who I feel are marginalized. Yeah. And I know that, I mean, for, for those of you listening, I'll tag this in the show notes, but you also contribute, um, you're a contributor on tellhersheCan't.com. So I know that Tell Her She Can't is a, is a book by Kelly Lewis, um, you know, but I, I think, I mean, your, your articles in that space probably have a lot to do with, um, you know, from, from a woman's standpoint, you know, just basically fighting for, 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 for equality in, in, in a sense. Is that correct? Yes and no. It's just, I okay. don't like, I, I have always fought for um, people, my, including myself, who feel marginalized and sure. people, you know, whether it's fixing a printer and getting, you know, the thing to not print two sides, I just want to fix things. I'm a problem solver. And I really dislike when people say it's just been that way. Well, fix it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't really know why, but this is just something that is my personal PFP. When someone tells me it's just that way, I'm like, no, it's not. And it's going to change. Yep. Yeah. It's a great it, entrepreneurial it mind. Does. It always yeah. does. I, I rarely um, am unable to solve a problem because I have a really deep stick to to a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, the, the drive that you have and just, you know, not, not ever giving up. So I think, I mean, that is such a powerful mindset to have. And I think it, I mean, I know for me, you know, it's, it's very tough to, to adopt that into everyday life 
you know, a hundred percent of the time. There's, there's days where, where it's, it feels like, you know, maybe becoming an entrepreneur maybe is not my future. And then I think, well, you know, self-doubt and those types of things. So, I mean, what tips do you have Janice to, to persist through and to not give up, you know, especially in the entrepreneurial journey, you hear it time and time again, you know, it's a grind. I mean, you might fail 10 plus times before you succeed. So what, what advice do you have for, for those of us out there that are pursuing entrepreneurship and, and need to know to not give up? Couple of things. One, I never view it. And I was having a conversation with a friend recently. I'm um, Ruth. I never feel like I failed. So when I may not succeed initially, I just view it as I need to fine tune whatever I was doing. And so if it didn't work the first time, it just means I may need to work hard and I may need to change something, but I don't view that as a failure. So for example, with the FDA um, ruling, I tried filing a petition in 2009 and the FDA didn't accept it. And I couldn't figure out why. So I tried again and I tried something else. And then when there was an opportunity to testify, I testified and in between had spoken to Senator Warren and then the rule and the law was languishing. So I tried again and suddenly the time was right. It was a different error. And so my petition this year was accepted. So I didn't view the 2009 as a failure. It wasn't just the right time. And I had to pivot and I had to figure out how to fix it. So I tried something else. So one of the ways of constantly, sometimes things, it's just, has nothing to do with you as a person. It has to do with just timing. So I have, you know how you have the, in the GDP, you have a basket full of products, the gross, I mean, and the GNP, the gross national product, you have a yeah. basket full of GNP. products. I have a basket full of proje- projects, not products, projects that I'm working on. Very yeah. diverse projects. And so when one slows down, I move to another project. Sometimes it could be, for example, the people in office. Like, for example, in New York City, we have a mayor who, in my opinion, it's it's can't I can't move past projects. He's on his way out next week, right? Sure. He, yeah. But so I have to kind of sit him out. Sometimes it could be a president I have to sit out. Sometimes it could be an industry I have to sit out. So I have to sometimes move away from a project, put that on hold, and move to another one. And then, like the Smithsonian, I've been working on that project since 2005. That's a long time. But I maintain it. I maintain a phone log so that when I need to go back to that project, I know exactly where I left off last time. I know the last time I spoke, what the next step is. And so when an opportunity arises, I can quickly go back to that project. So in the current uh, appropriations bill, there's a paragraph about hearing access in the Smithsonian because I had an opportunity where suddenly that project could move forward. Yeah. And I had a history of working on that from 2005. Now, what is interesting is sometimes putting something on hold actually benefits you because, for example, in the advocacy world, you're now going back and you're saying, listen, I've been working on this project for 16 years. This is insane. And here's all the documentation. Here's the article I wrote about it for HuffPost. The time waiting actually helps you, right? Because 
that's a long time. Nobody should have to work for, to add hearing access at the Smithsonian for 16 years, right? A yeah. year, people. So sometimes the delay can actually work to your advantage. And But it wasn't like I was just sitting at my computer screen staring at the Smithsonian project. I worked on other projects in between. Also, then by moving and shifting, I got I had successes with other projects, which helped with my credibility so that when I came back and I returned to the Smithsonian, I had built up this other credibility that helped me boy, you know, lift up the Smithsonian. So having many projects and pivoting, and I think that's one thing you learn from travel is sometimes you can be on a trip and it doesn't work out quite the way you think it's going to, and you have to shift and you have to be flexible. And you learn how you may have to change cities. You may not be able to go to the museum you wanted to because they closed and, and whatever reason. You learn to be flexible. Same with projects. And I think having a lot of projects you're working on at a time helps because you can't, you're not 100% vested in one single project. Yeah. I know that resonates with me specifically. I mean, I have my hands in a lot of different projects. I've got, you know, a lot of different passions and and sometimes I feel like I'm spreading myself too thin, but it's, but it feels good to hear you say that, you know, if, if you need to put one, you know, on, on a break for a little bit and, and focus on it later, when you come back to it, you know, in your case, I mean, certain things move with, with, with politics and, and administrative type features, but you know, your project by just setting it, you know, if you're writing a book and you just set it to the side for a little bit, come back to it later your mind might be refreshed and you might have better ideas and you might have a, a renewed perspective on that. So I think that I really do appreciate you saying that, Janice. Yeah. And I, I, I think sometimes you end up having a, a fresh perspective that you see things you didn't see before. And sometimes a roadblock, there may be an opening within the roadblock that you may have not seen before just because you were too close to it. Um, yeah. And sometimes you just it just needs to, sometimes you just really can't solve the problem at that given time. And there are lots of reasons why. Just put it aside, move on to something else, and then you come back to it um, right. with a fresh perspective. Absolutely. But I never view them as failures. I just view them as putting it to the side. That's a great, that's a great way to view it. I mean, that's a very, you know, that's a very not give up mindset of viewing it. So I, I appreciate you. I appreciate that sentiment there, Janice. And I want to be respectful of your time, and I really do appreciate you being a guest on the show. Um, thank you so much for sharing you know, your expertise, and, and I think everybody will learn a lot by going to your website and reading about your company. Um, I'll tag all of that in the show notes. Everyone definitely go check out Janice's website, her personal website, as well as her company. She's featured in a lot of articles. I mean, she's really she's, she's got her hands in a lot of cool things, so definitely give her a check out. And Janice, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you, Eric, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. You have a great evening. You too.